Our prayer, and I want to invite your attention to Romans chapter 12, that we may extend that subject this morning. Romans chapter 12, I want to say thank you a million times over for your great work and your labors and prayers. This past week, during our Harvest Crusade with Ronnie Hill, we baptized 17 on Wednesday night, one on Tuesday night, three this morning. Uh, most of these had something to do with the crusade, and I want to say thank you. Many others came to the Lord, we'll be working with them. But God answers prayer and responds to the witness and the invitation of His people. And God came through marvelously, and I want to say thank you uh, for all that you did to make that a marvelous success. Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to, of course, have our message here, and then following the message, I will extend an invitation and invite you to come to Christ, but also I'm going to invite you to be baptized today. If you're an adult, if you're a teenager, with your parents' permission, I'm going to invite you as well. And so during the invitation, please come, and we'll baptize you today, much like we did Wednesday night. We have shorts and t-shirts and towels and all the accoutrements that you will need for baptism, and we want to ask you to come and to come uh, this, uh, this morning if that is what you need today. Uh, for that reason, counselors, if you will, please be ready during the invitation. Just come, and we may need you today. And so please help us with that. George Yancey and David Williamson have written a book on their research about anti-Christian bigotry in the nation. And it's entitled, So Many Christians, So Few Lions. Is there Christophobia in the United States? George Yancey is a researcher and professor at the University of North Texas and does an excellent job with this. And he says there is significant animosity towards Christian, Christians in the nation from the liberal educated crowd in the United States, uh, men and women, but most of these happen to be ma uh, Anglo males. Now they're careful to point out that the majority of progressives or liberals in the United States who are educated are very civil and in no way would wish any harm on any Bible-believing Christian. So it's not the majority, but it is a significant minority. And it seems to stem from American secular education. I would expect in the next 20 years for these proportions to reverse. But about 37% hold what Yancey and Williamson would call anti-Christian bigotry and bias. Now, the interesting thing about Yancey is that his specialization uh, is uh, racism in America. And he's taken some of those tools and applied it to anti-Christian bigotry. And he's very careful to point out that it's not the majority of liberal, progressive, educated elites, but a significant and hostile and motivated minority of 37%, most of them, frankly, educated Anglo males and some Anglo females. One, doc, one man with a doctorate said about Christians, I want them all to die in a fire. One with a master's degree said, we need to sterilize them so they can't breed anymore. One with a doctorate said, the only good Christian is a dead Christian. A torturous death would be too good for them. Now, there are some that don't go that far that do believe in scaling back the rights, the civil liberties, uh, and basic human rights of Christian people in the United States. One with a bachelor's degree said, we should restrict their ability to become judges and uh, to become senators, representatives, members of the presidential cabinet, military chief of staff, and other powerful members of government. One with a master's degree said they should not be able to make decisions regarding the law and they should have to be supervised if they're working with other people. One with a doctorate said churches should not be allowed to provide orphanages or adoption programs. And by the way, today is National Adoption Day and much of that movement is fueled by the Bible-believing Christians in the nation. 
One with a master's degree said, I think we should restrict the indoctrination of children in religious dogma and ritual. One with a doctorate said, conservative Christians should not be allowed to hold political office, to be police, or to serve in the armed forces. I must say to you, it's rather obvious, I take a different view. And I believe you do too. And most importantly, Jesus Christ does. What then are we to do with Christians and the churches? The churches have built them up and sent them out. And much of what we find among Bible-believing Christians today is due to the influence of the church. Here's what we need to do with the church. First, we need to join the church. The Bible does not imagine a saved and baptized person without a local church. And we should do so as quickly as we can. And at the end of the message, we'll give you the opportunity to do that. If you do not know Christ or have not been baptized or both, we'll give you the opportunity to unite with Beach Haven. And if you will agree with the Word of God and make a good faith effort to follow Jesus Christ, you are welcomed here. We should also cherish the church as much as doctors cherish patients. Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick who need one. And so the church is much like a hospital. So if you come to Beach Haven or some other church, do not be surprised if they're struggling people here. Any more than you would be surprised to find sick people in a doctor's office or hospital. That's what we are. We hope to be a museum one day, but we got a long ways to go. We really do. Right now we are a hospital. And that's what we have. Don't be surprised if you see people that are struggling with sin in the churches. Then defend the church. Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We defend the church. We guard the church with our lives and with our words. We do not crumble or wilt before criticism. And then Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Uh, the truth is, is that God expects us to attend the church. Not much wiggle room here. Sometimes health and travel prevent people from doing so. We understand that. Those are providential hindrances, and we applaud those who have a heart for it anyway. But if we are physically able and in town, we should be in church every time the church body gathers. Paul in Romans chapter 12 described the value of the churches. And he made the point here, we need the churches. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to, think of himself, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So what are we to do with the church? Well, let me, let's just imagine for a moment that some of these had their wish and that there were no Christians in churches. I have several questions to ask. Number one, who will share the gospel? Who will share the gospel if there are no churches? If there are no Christians. Chapter 12, verse 1, here the apostle said, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to relinquish yourself as a sacrifice to God. When you see a therefore in the New Testament, look and see what it's there for. That's a great interpretive approach, a way to understand the Bible. Paul, with this word therefore, says, let's go back to chapters 1 through 11, where he describes the gospel. And he says, because of humankind's sinfulness, 
God's remedy through the cross and um, the opportunity to be made right with God by faith. Now that that is true, therefore relinquish yourself to God. And so Paul here in the book of Romans declares the gospel and moves from that, from the head and heart to the life. He says, on the basis of the gospel, relinquish yourself to God in a living, holy, and acceptable way. And then for the rest of the chapter, and the book of Romans bases uh, his counsel on the gospel of Christ. In other words, there's a gospel that transforms life, and it should. If you've got a Christian faith and message that does not change the life, find another one. It's not the biblical one, and it's not even Christian. What the Christian message and the message of salvation leads to transformation of life. And the most urgent message in all the world, the most eternal message in all the world, is housed in the local churches. If there weren't any, there'd be no salvation knowledge throughout the earth. And so that is what the gospel of Christ does. It always leads to the theory, to the practice, from doctrine to duty. And that's been true throughout world history. Everywhere the gospel has gone, enormous social and individual change ends up following. That's been true, especially in the areas of education. Christians were the ones to dream of it and extend it to the public and not just the privileged. In fact, in the ninth century, two missionaries from Thessalonica went into the Slavic areas of Europe. And there they declared the gospel of Christ, but they had a problem. The Slavs had no written language or alphabet, and so they created one. It's called the Cyrillic alphabet. And out of that have developed the Slavic languages and the Russian language. And the ironic thing, one of the delicious ironies of history, is that when Soviet communists in the 20th century were denying the existence of God in Eastern Europe and Russia, they were doing so with an alphabet invented by Christian missionaries. That's what, ladies and gentlemen, the Christian faith will do. It will give even the intellectual tools and apparatus to its enemies and its most hostile opponents. Everywhere the gospel goes, change follows. Without the church, the gospel does not penetrate the world. But there's a second question. Who will please the Lord? Let me ask you something. What do most people have on their minds today? Most of the thoughts and desires and pleasures of the earth can be summarized under three areas, at least in the United States. These three things are mostly on the minds of most people. Money, power, and sex. And each of these points to personal pleasure. The Christian faith teaches something different. It says relinquish your pleasures, entrust them to God, give all of these to God, and you serve the people. You do not worry about yourself. God will do that. He's a good father. He will take care of you, and he wants to do so through Jesus Christ. You take care of other people and let God take care of you. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, in the text in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I urge you by God's mercies, I urge you by, uh, by these things to relinquish or to present your body like a sacrifice. But in this case, it needs to be living, not dead. It needs to be holy and distinct, and it needs to be acceptable to God. 
And this is reasonable, and it's reasonable worship. The word service here can be translated worship. And so all of life is to be something like a relinquishment to God and therefore becomes a worship service, whether it's in a worship center, whether it's in a Bible study class, whether it happens to be at work or in home. When we relinquish our ways to God and give ourselves on His terms, life becomes a sweet pleasure to Him. And I've got a question for you. Without the churches and Christians, where in the world would we find this in all the earth? And it's not like I'm asking you to please me. I'm not asking you to please your neighbor. I'm not asking you to please anyone else. What God is saying is, please me. And is there anyone whose standards and vision is more perfect than his? I mean, this is someone that's never had to apologize. This is someone, whenever he has a son and raises him, he's Jesus. This is the God. This is the God that calls you to live for His pleasure. And so He expects no evil. He expects no compromise. Without a church then, you do not have models of people showing you how to please the Lord. But there's a third question. Who will expose the world? Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not let the world shape you into its fold. Do not allow the world to cause you to compromise biblical principles. What the Scripture teaches is right and wrong. To abandon biblical beliefs. To adopt a different set of aspirations and priorities. Don't let the world do that to you. Now, I've got to say to you, I've been around long enough to know this makes perfectly good sense to me. Oh, it does. In fact, I will say to you, if you are following the world and rejecting the ways of Jesus Christ that you might be like everyone else, I've got to say to you, you're behind the times. It is the church that is on the cutting edge of social change. And not just the cutting edge, but because the criticism launched our way, sometimes the bleeding edge of social change. Back in the 50s, Christians complained about the dangers of smoking. And they called us fuddy-duddies and a lot of other names back then. Well, the Surgeon General caught up sometime in the late 50s and 60s and began to warn the public about it. In the 60s, we complained about the quality of, of school education. And they uh, didn't believe us, and they criticized and complained against us. But by the 80s, they had wised up, and they said, you know, there are some challenges there. Well, not only that, but in the 70s, we began to complain about the effects of divorce upon children and upon mental health and education and society. And uh, they said we were too strict and too narrow and called us other names. Well, by the 90s, they had finally caught up with our view, and researchers began to say, hey, that's had an impact. In the 80s, we complained about materialism. I'm still waiting for them to wise up to that. In the 90s, we started uh, warning the world about uh, the nation, about the need for family, and they have finally caught up to that. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say if you're walking with the world, you're walking behind the times. It's the church that's on the cutting and the bleeding edge of social change because God leads His people, and there's no one with a greater knowledge base than God. God needs no Ph.D. God needs no laboratory. God needs uh, no research methodologies. God doesn't have to write up his reports. Ladies and gentlemen, we spend tens of millions of dollars every year uh, justifying and validating God's Word and biblical morality and biblical thinking uh, through uh, private foundations and government studies. I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, I I can save them, I can save the government and private foundations millions and millions of dollars in many cases by going to the dollar store and giving them a $1 Bible. Is what we could do. You see, nobody knows humanity and life and family and marriage and society as God does. And so when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, it makes a lot of sense to me. 
And yet they want to turn their ire on us and call us names. Reminds me of the lady that went into a counselor, worried about her husband. But when she walked in, she had a fried egg on top of her head. Oh yeah, she had a fried egg on top of her head and two pieces of bacon wrapped around her ears and whipped cream on her nose. And she sat down with the counselor and said, I'm worried about my husband. (laughs) To the critical world, and much of it is not critical. Much of it's not critical. Some of it admires what we're doing. But to the critical world, I want to say, physician, heal thyself. Without a church, you do not have the reinforcements to resist. It's tough to live in the world and to stand for Christ, but I want to make you a promise that here at Beach Haven, if you'll become part of Beach Haven, we will stand with you and you will not stand for Christ alone. We'll go with you. But there's a fourth question I want to ask, and that is, who will serve the need? Who will serve the needs? Many people imagine them giving themselves to God, much like giving uh, $1,000. And they imagine their lives being worth that or maybe more and just giving it all to God in one lump sum in a dramatic fashion. And they want to be big and bold and they want to be uh, famous for God. And so they just give all of themselves when in fact what happens so often in life is that giving yourself to God is not one big dramatic act of giving yourselves uh, represented by say $1,000. But it's more like traveling through life and giving out quarters here and there. You give yourself away in small doses. And that's what happens in verses 3 through 8. That's what you have here. In fact, verses 3 through 8 may, may be giving yourself in, 10, uh, in 25 cent pieces. It says to use your gifts because you're like a body. And every member, every part of the body has got to perform its function. And then he gets specific in verse number 6. If it's preaching in proportion to faith, in ministry, in ministering, teaching, teaching, exhortation, exhortation, giving in liberality, with leadership, diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. But then he moves from 25-cent pieces that you give along to nickels and dimes, beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate towards one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. What we have just done here by reading verses 4 through 13 is that we have essentially summarized the whole of Christian history. And this is the heart and the soul of the Christian church. And that's why we seek to meet the need. So if there is no church, if there is no church, who will serve the need? Now some people may look at the world and national situation today and say, where is the church? What is the church doing besides what it does on Sunday morning? And launch criticisms against us, but most of that is historically unaware. Through two millenniums, the church has been at the forefront of social righteousness. It has been. We invented, in fact, the first orphanages. When the Romans were displeased with little girls and would throw them on trash heaps, the Christians came along two millenniums ago and adopted them into their families, or they developed orphanages. And we've been doing that all along. In fact, if you give to Beach Haven, you support the Georgia Baptist uh, Convention's uh, children's ministries in uh, uh, homes for children and also for senior adults. And we came up with that notion, 
and that idea too. I'm very hesitant to say this because I don't want to sound like I'm a PR man for the church. God can take care of that, and I don't want to brag, but I do have to make us historically aware. It happened to be Christians, in fact, in England who led the charge against slavery through William Wilberforce. There was a great revival, and then there was a great, uh, under John Wesley, and then there was a great outcry. And after laboring for three decades, William Wilberforce, the zealous, dedicated Christian man, was able to overthrow them. Today, we're leading efforts to overcome human trafficking. We're exalting the family. We're at the front of the pro-life movement and not ashamed or embarrassed by it. And the American experience of slavery was opposed initially by very few people in the United States until the Bible-believing abolitionists stood and declared, we are one another's brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and it is wrong to enslave anyone. That was the Christian movement. One woman came up to Rick Warren and said, hey, I just helped a man, a member of his church, by the way, I just helped a man. He didn't have anything to eat, and I gave him $10. And she said, I think the church ought to do something about that. And Rick said, I think the church just did. That's right. So who will serve the need? But then finally, if there are no churches, who will turn their enemies? Who will turn the enemies? You may not realize it, and you may be tempted to think the whole notion of enemies may be irrelevant, but you probably have more enemies than what you realize. You probably do. Not only in the spirit world, which is very real, and Jesus interacted and spoke on that often, but actually in this world. Uh, The the reason you may not be aware of it is that most people are too polite and too politic to let you know it. They are. Uh, They would be quite embarrassed to um, demonstrate their hostility towards you. And then most of them are subtle and covert and looking for an opportunity to stab you in the back. And so coming up front just is not in their best interest. And then the laws that we have, especially in workplaces and other places, would prevent them from doing so. Truth is, you probably have some enemies. You probably do. And this text addresses that, verses 14 to 21. It says how we should run our mouth about our enemies in verses 14 and 15. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, it's not necessarily cuss. Don't say anything harsh about them. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, verse 14. Then verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. You have an enemy, do not minimize their joys, and do not minimize or delegitimize their weeping. That's what we do with our mouth towards our enemy. Then our mind, verses 16 and 17. Be of the same mind toward one another. Where you can find common ground, stand there. Rejoice in it with your enemies. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion around your enemies. Repay no enemy evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Give credit where credit is due, even with your enemies. And that's what we do with our mind. Then our ministry towards our enemies in verse 18. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Not everyone will reconcile. It takes two. Sometimes you're the only partner in that. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And then he goes on to say, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath to God's wrath. Don't you take wrath. God has wrath. If God thinks wrath is appropriate in, with your enemies, let him take care of that because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, here's what you do. You don't take wrath, but you do verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, 
feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. And in so doing, you will heap coals of repentance on his head. And that was a uh, way of describing repentance. Heaping coals of fire on his head. That they are embarrassed by how they're interacting with you, and it leads some of them to repentance. And here's a summary. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Folks, there's no other faith and no other institution in the world saying what this says about dealing with your enemies. Now, somebody might say, wait a minute, hold on just a minute. Christian faith, what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? What about all the murders committed in the name of Christ by the Christians and the churches? Huh? Huh? What about that? Well, I will say to you, those are atrocities. And those are awful. And Christians engaged and intervened to object to those things. In fact, the Protestant Reformation, one of Martin Luther's 95 theses, was protest against the Crusades. And Baptists came out of that because Luther didn't separate church and state and was rather hostile to Jews and to Muslims. And so the Baptists came out of that. They wanted to evangelize Jews and Muslims and not kill them. And so uh, that's where we came from. And we've always insisted upon religious liberty. All American Christians have, and many European Christians as well. And now, south of the equator, where the faith is burgeoning and exploding, they do as well because God alone is Lord of the conscience. The state is not. Ladies and gentlemen, the state has a hard time doing Social Security. Do you think we're giving them theology? Oh, no. Oh, no. And so, uh, but I've got to say to you, the Crusades were wrong. I'm not even sure those who led them were sincere Catholics, much less Christian. And so the Crusades were wrong. The Inquisition was wrong. Murdering in the name of Christ is always wrong. It's wrong. But I would say to you, that at most, if you accumulate all the deaths that took place at the hands of Christians in the Crusades, in the Counter-Reformation, and in the Inquisition, you might get to 200,000. May I transport you from the 11th and 12th century to the 20th century, and while you're criticizing the church, let's talk about the far right of Nazism, which is responsible for the death of 20 million citizens of the earth, and communism under Lenin and Stalin and Mao, and Pol Pot, which numbers at least 30 million. Both of those unchristian and anti-Christian philosophies, some of which were atheistic, let's be fair in our assessment. This is what we're to do with our enemies, and violence against our enemies is wrong, and so um, that is the Christian position. In fact, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When God had enemies, He sent His Son to die in their place for their sins. God is a king with the court system and laws and sentences and judgments. And when we uh, had sinned and violated His law and were sentenced to death in hell, God sent His Son to take our place. That's what God does with His own enemies. God dies in their place through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And God says we are to do unto our enemies what God does with Him. And so, violence against our enemies is profoundly evil. And exaggerating the wounds they inflict on us is wrong as well. Where it's real, we've got to admit it, but it would be wrong to exaggerate. This is the Christian position against enemies. Now, that's national affairs. What about in the home? Oscar Thompson was evangelism professor at Southwestern Seminary in the 70s before he passed away in the early 80s of cancer. 
He took five men from Fort Worth to Reno, Nevada for a crusade. They were going to do a lot of witnessing during the week to prepare for it. And they had a marvelous week in Reno. And one day they divided up into two groups. Oscar went with three men to one part of the city to do some witnessing. And two other men went with others to do some witnessing. Well, they're headed to a laundromat during a break to wash their clothes. And the three men in the car with him said, stop. And he said, why? He said, there's a lady over there with two teenagers. We need to go witness to them. And so they just abruptly stopped, got out of the car, started talking to the woman. He thought, oh, this is not going to go well. This is not going to go well. This is an anti-Christian culture. Uh, This is not a real smooth evangelism tactic that I have taught them. And so uh, I don't know how well this is going to go. Well, after a while, they started motioning to him to come talk to the lady. And he got to her and found out that she had been estranged that week from her husband. He had left, the marriage was busted, the family was busted, and the two two teenagers were standing there trembling in tears. She was about upset as well. And she said, you wouldn't believe it, but as I was out here watering my plants and my flowers, I prayed that God would send somebody to tell me what to do, and then you showed up. Well, she and her two teenagers bowed their head in prayer. They turned themselves over to Jesus Christ and promised to come to the church that evening for the crusade. On the other side of town, uh, the other two men of the team walked into a grocery store. And they found a man there playing a one-armed bandit, a slot machine, which happens to be, or at least used to be, in all the grocery stores in Nevada. And they were standing there playing that. And one man walked by him and said, hey, that thing won't pay off at all. He said, I've got something that will pay off for all eternity. He said, what do you mean? He said, come on outside with me and let's stand by the car and talk for a moment. And so they talked with this fella about the Lord Jesus And standing there by the car, that man gave his heart and life to Christ and promised to be at the crusade that evening. Well, that evening came. They were in the church. The invitation was extended like we'll extend to you in just a moment. And the woman with her two teenagers bolted out down the aisle, came down this way. And the man bolted out from over here and came down this way. They met each other, and it happened to be the husband and wife that were estranged from one another. And they were reunited in Jesus Christ at the altar of this church. Ladies and gentlemen, we could replay that story countless times in just this church. I could start here and go through every person and ask them to come to the pulpit and take a minute to declare what Jesus had done for them, and it would take us all afternoon into the evening because they wouldn't take just a minute. They would go past a minute. They would extend it to two and three and five. People that are absolutely terrified to death of speaking before public people. Given the opportunity to lift up Jesus, they would do it because he died, was buried, rose again, been changing lives ever since simply by repentance and faith in the gospel and surrender thereafter. That can happen to you. There is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll carry you. There is no secret what God can do. Jesus can solve every problem. The tangles of life undo. There's nothing too hard for Jesus. There's nothing he cannot do. He's crowned victorious. He has defeated hell, death, the grave, all satanic powers. There's nothing too big in your life, nothing so horrifying, nothing so terrifying that Jesus cannot master that and be Lord if you'll turn to him in this moment today. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the good news that's in Jesus Christ. And we pray that friends now, indeed, would turn to the Lord and follow Him and follow Him in baptism. Others have, and they just simply need to become part of this church, and we pray they would. Others need to give themselves to you again, and we pray for that. 
And we ask that you would do a marvelous work in this time as we dedicate it to you. Thank you that Jesus Christ is thoroughly trustworthy in this hour. We praise you for it. Now let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And while we're praying, I want to ask you to turn to the Lord and give yourself to Him. And after